Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. We have, on our journey through Matthew thus far, seen the ancestry of the king. That is the lineage of Christ, the genealogy, which usually people skip over in their reading plan. We have come to the arrival of Christ, or the arrival of the king, and that is the virgin's conception, that Jesus came and was born of a virgin. And today, we come to what I've titled the adoration of the king. There is this moment of worship when he arrives, and the magi come, and they bring him gifts. And so, if you will stand one final time, as we do each week, let's read God's Word together. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and then we'll pray and jump right in. Matthew writes, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Then they quote Micah. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. That is God's word to us today. You may be seated. Let's go to him together in prayer. Father, we stop and pray this way each week to recognize your sovereignty over this church, that it belongs to you, and to ask that the power of the Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would want to receive your word. Thinking of a comment made by my dear sister between services regarding the reception of the word. That unless you help us to be open to it, we cannot receive what you have to say. Help me to be a faithful servant to my brothers and my sisters here and now, to teach and to lead and to exhort through the word faithfully, to preach with clarity. Help us all to see what you want us to see in the Magi's visit. Give us understanding of Matthew's goal in writing these words. And I simply pray that the outcome of all of it would be adoration unto Jesus. That you, Lord, Master, our Savior, and our King, 
would have all of our life in every way. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And so today our our passage highlights the great lengths that the Magi went to seek Christ, to worship Him and to adore Him. In this particular text, and you may have noticed it during our reading, you also see that there are chief priests and scribes that are involved as well. And they tell Herod who this king is or who this baby is, the Messiah. Of course, you have Herod's response as he's triggered with troubled feelings, hostility and aggression. The two questions that surface in our minds when we come to a text like this and the Magi's visit is, who is Jesus? And then what will you do with your answer to that question? If he is God, if he is the Savior, if he is the Messiah King, how you respond to that dictates everything to come. There are four particular responses that we see in the text along the journey of the Magi's visit And I want to unpack those, and I pray the Holy Spirit would use them to challenge us. The first is the resolve. There's this resolve in these men. They've come a long way. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 capture uh, the beginning of their journey. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. That's their origin. Many believe it's Persia, saying... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. I want you to notice their resolve in a couple of ways. Number one, they don't speculate that he's the king. What do they say? We have come to worship him. Who's him? The one born king of the Jews. This is not a a tourist visit. It's not speculative. We've come to see if he is the one. We've come to check it out and inquire. No. They dogmatically question, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And then they know the purpose for why they've come. We've come to worship him. They've already decided in their minds that Christ, the Messiah, is worthy of worship. They're going to pay homage to this one who has been born. And to help kind of give you the picture of all that's happening contextually, We want to also notice that Matthew records after Jesus has been born, and in the days that follow, uh, best estimates are that it's one to two years here before the Magi come. They've arrived. Now, again, don't need to ruin your nativity scene or or get rid of the, the wise men, but to give you an idea, your nativity scene and mine is giving you the total picture. You've got a stable. You've got a star. You've got the baby in the manger. You've got... Mary. We always pick on her for wearing blue. No one knows why she's always in blue, right? And then you have Joseph. And we've reviewed the nativity scene, and you've got your wise men over here, either on their camels or they've been dismounted, and your kids are extra excited if you have them, because now they have more things in the nativity scene to play with. And there's empty camels, and there's lammies, and barnyard animals, and all of it together. And then you've got the shepherds. And we look at that picture and think, wow, it must have been a real busy night. And I love the The joke, I know Christmas is past, but I heard a friend recently say, you know, I I just, I can't help but think of what kind of a young boy comes and, and says, you know, after giving birth to a baby in a stable and after her long journey 
and after all of these people have invaded this small stable, I know what this woman needs, just what she needs. It's a drum solo, and we have the drummer boy there who's just ripping on his snare for Mary. You know, that's exactly what she needed at that time. And so just picture for a moment together the whole scene unfolding over the course, minus the drummer boy, of about one to two years. The Magi have journeyed a long way, best estimates, about 800 to 900 miles from where they came. And who are they? We think of them, we sing about them even as three kings, right? The song, We Three Kings of Orient, the Orient, are bearing gifts we've traveled so far. Well, contrary to what our Christmas cards would portray or or maybe what we sang, they're not actually kings, but rather noblemen and wise men. They are advisors to kings. They're well-researched. These are men of great wisdom. They have read the scrolls. They've read the stars, and not in an ethereal kind of uh, astrologer and astronomy kind of way, just trying to read the tea leaves, but they've studied the patterns of the world. They're great researchers. And so while they might have come wearing really nice clothing, uh, they probably didn't have uh, giant, you know, robes and, and, and elaborate turbans, and, and they wore that the entire time. Again, if you want to have that on your Christmas card, and they arrived, maybe they got changed. Maybe they stopped at, you know, a gas station somewhere, and they, they all got dressed to see the king. No problem with that. But in general, you've got to think of this as a grueling journey. This ain't pretty, and it's certainly not easy. I kind of got a taste of this this last week. I was driving back from L.A. Class ended around uh, you know, I think it was four or five o'clock. I don't know. We're an hour, an hour time change here. But uh, overall, I had a plan. I had sweatpants and a hoodie and some slip-ons, and I was going to change and drive because I wear dress clothes every day, and we wear suits. And I know some of you always tease me or you send me a text message or, or what have you, and you say, are you going to wear that when you get home to Shepherd's House? So I say, no, it's Arizona, uh, you know, especially in the summer when we go in July. I don't want to put on a suit and sweat through it. I don't have enough money for the dry cleaning bill that comes with wearing a suit every Sunday, let alone all the suits. And that's not it. Don't buy me suits. Um, We're good. We're in Arizona. Uh, But I drove home in my dress clothes and in my dress shoes because I wanted to see my family. I was so excited to get home. And I said, it's just going to take so long to change. Then I'm going to see another friend, and hey, and then next you know, an hour has gone by. So I'm just going to get in the car. I'm going to drive the seven hours in my dress clothes. And if you have ever driven somewhere for seven hours in dress shoes, mm, you already know. I don't have to go any further. We're good. We can move on with the illustration. Uh, this is difficult for these men. There's likely a caravan. We often think of them as three Kings, we need to be careful. We often say three. Why? Because there was three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. There could have been two wise men. There also could have been 20 wise men. We don't know. But a caravan would have traveled. Why? Because magi typically traveled with servants because they were an emissary of the king and advisors to the king. So this is no small group. This isn't three guys on camelback. This is a large effort to do what from the east? To come 
and worship him. And they arrive in town asking a pressing question, where is he? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What is Matthew trying to help us understand? Well, right away as readers, we're looking at that and we're thinking, these aren't Jews, these are outsiders and they've come to worship him. Yes, Matthew is putting on display the fact that outsiders will come and worship this king. The prophets did foretell about him. And yes, he is the, the savior of the Jews or the king of the Jews But one of the first examples of those who would come and pay homage to this king are outsiders from the east who have no right and no claim to a Jewish heritage. Matthew giving us an early picture of the Great Commission that Jesus would commission his followers to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Their resolve is not to just see if Jesus lives up to the hype. It's not a journalistic inquiry for a story. They already know what they want to do. They want to pay homage to the king. They want to worship him. We aren't told how these men come to know about Jesus, but Magi are linked, you can find their origins, all the way back in the time of Daniel. You ever heard of Daniel in the lion's den? If you're kind of newer to church and understanding kind of these historic stories, or if you're more familiar with the Bible, Daniel is a very significant figure. Daniel was one of the closest uh, individuals we would have to to a, a person, a man, who is part of the Magi. These are wise and noble individuals. And they're in the know. And so these men would know from from a long time before the writings of the Jewish prophets about their Messiah and their resolve is evident as they press on to seek Christ. And while their resolve is evident through their pressing question, it's also a provocative one, especially for another character in the narrative, King Herod. And so while we see resolve, we also, number two, see the resentment. The resentment. Let's look at verses 3 through 8 and break this down together. When Herod the king heard this, he was excited. He wanted to worship too. No, he was troubled. It's a Greek word that is not a, a simple little feeling of saying, hmm, I wonder what this is all about. No, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. This is inner turmoil. The word even better translates in English, terrified. You ever hear the phrase, you know, he or she is rattled. Something is just shaking you to your core. That's the feeling that Herod has here. Now, I want you to understand as well, and Matthew intends this too, they're going to be troubled for different reasons, not the same reasons. Herod is going to be troubled about this news, about their question. Jerusalem with him, but for two different reasons. Let's understand Herod first. He is an Edomite. Malachi 4.1 says there are people that are cursed. He's an imposter king. If you just want to summarize it in your notes, he's an imposter king. He has no right to the throne of David. The governing structure at the time from the Romans was to put 
what I like to call puppet kings in place who will do Caesar's bidding. They're not going to get in the way of Caesar's authoritarian dictatorship. And so we have Herod. Well, what do you think Herod's worst nightmare is? That one day somebody's going to come along who is actually from the royal line and claim a right to the throne that he was keeping warm. And you think, well, I mean, then Herod would just have to bow out, right? No. He was a vicious and vile man. He was known for fighting turf wars to protect his spot, far worse than many of the rulers in history at that time. He would kill all rivals viciously, family members even. Herod would not go out without a fight. And certainly here, the talk of a baby having been born king makes Jesus his number one target. So why do you think he was troubled? Well, he was in the business of self-preservation. He's ruthless. He's paranoid. He'll have none of it. Well, then what accounts for Jerusalem being troubled with him? All of Jerusalem was troubled with him because he was a nightmare to be under when he was obsessing over his turf wars. His vile and vicious attacks and assaults on his adversaries would only spill over to more oppression on the people who were under his rule. And so Jerusalem would be troubled because he was troubled. The commentator Leon Morris says, when Herod the Great trembled, the whole city shook. The reason for that is because like a volcano, his rage would explode and set fire to everything around him. So what does he do? He gathers together all the chief priests, verse 4, and the scribes of the people. He's calling the Jewish leaders. Come on, tell me what's going on. What is this? Who is he? What do we got here? Where will the Messiah be born is his question. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And then they quote the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, or by no means least among the leaders in Judah, for out of you shall come forth. And then don't miss these two words. If you want to circle them in your Bible, you totally can. Will come forth a ruler who will, and then shepherd my people Israel. Two very important words that would strike utter fear in the heart of Herod and further ignite his wrath and his rage because both of those words signify someone over him. Ruler is singular, not plural meaning one over all, the king of all kings, the ruler of other rulers, that everyone will get out of his way. They'll part like the Red Sea for this one who will come. And a shepherd, uh, perhaps a shadow of Ezekiel's prophecy when Ezekiel prophesies on behalf of Yahweh, God, against the leaders of Israel at his time, they were shepherds who were feeding themselves. Ezekiel calls them false shepherds on behalf of God. A picture of what would later happen with the Pharisees and the blind guides. Jesus would call them a brood of vipers. John the Baptist, a brood of vipers. He would call them, Jesus would call them a, a, a group of whitewashed tombs. Vile men. Why? 
because they oppressed people, they abused people, they exploited the people. They weren't faithfully caring for God's people. Oh, that is exactly the kind of leader and ruler that Herod was. And the prophecy is about one who is anything but like Herod. Herod's chief priests and scribes would be Jews, familiar with what the prophets foretold. The, the prophecy is from Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And if you want to just add this into to kind of your arsenal of prophetic history, you have Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesies about 700 years before Christ. We talk about Isaiah's prophecies a lot during Christmas. For unto us a son is given, unto us a child will be born. Well, a contemporary of Isaiah is also Micah. And a contemporary along with them is also a prophet maybe you've heard of named Hosea. These prophets are prophesying at that time. So we're still in the era of about 700 years before Jesus would come. And they don't just kind of shoot around the target with a near miss. It's a bullseye about the Messiah who would come. Micah 5 verse 2 says this, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Could you imagine Herod's fear and terror. As he hears or reads, maybe they unroll the scroll right in front of him. They got to go to the archives. They bring it back, blow the dust off it, unroll it right before him. And he's reading along or listening along as they say, from eternity. Herod, perhaps hiding his terrors, thinking, I don't stand a chance. This has been set from eternity past. He couldn't have come at a different time. No one's going to touch my throne. No one's going to change my life. As Herod gets his intel, I wonder if he's not unlike many people today who are not merely inconvenienced by Jesus, but they resent the fact that when he enters your life, things will change. That he doesn't share the throne with anyone, including you. You know the old phrase, ignorance is bliss. Many times it is because you just don't know. Well, Herod knows. His suspicions are confirmed. The baby is the one foretold. And He's drawing visitors, and, and it's not, again, three guys on camels, sort of inconspicuous. It is a caravan of individuals who have come to pay homage to a king, and that king is not Herod. Today, there are people who will put minimal effort into their marriage, into their job, into their own family but they become the hardest working individual when it comes time to keep Christ at bay. They'll wake up in the morning with so little motivation, but the second they hear all of life for all of Christ, give your life to him today, lay yourself down, submit to him. He is the king. They begin to have a zeal and a fire that perhaps their friends, family, wife, whoever is in their life, probably their boss, would only wish they would have on a Monday morning for the tasks of the day. 
but to keep Christ out. Oh, like Herod, they will ignite with passion and fire. I remember speaking to a man who knew Jesus was the Son of God. He had heard the message. He knew, he understood, and he believed it was true. He told me that. I had asked him those questions. And so I said to him, then commit your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ today. Come to the Lord. Lay yourself down before him. Today is the day of salvation. And I remember him saying, just not yet. And I said, why not? He said, because I know if I do, he's going to change my life. And there are things that I'm enjoying that I'm not ready to give up yet. And I remember thinking of this as such a bittersweet moment. Why? Well, because it's kind of nice to hear that level of honesty once in a while. At least he wasn't playing the game. He was telling me flat out, I'm living a certain way right now, but let me grab that off the shelf when I'm ready. But it's a bitter moment because I'm thinking, do you understand that tomorrow is not promised? Only today, only this moment. Do you understand that is why the Bible shouts, not whispers, today is the day of salvation. It's not a, hey, I might get to this when I can. It's no, he's the Lord, the Savior, the King. He's the one. And today in this moment, your life can change forever. And not only that, he'll change the palate of your flavors and your desires that you want these things now will be a thing of the past. You'll only long for him because when he takes over, he takes over he didn't want it. And I think some of us can be the same way is you know the truth. But you don't want to change. Instead of seeking Jesus with resolve, Her- Herod's mad. He's fired up. He's resentful. Why? Because the beginning of Christ's rule is the end of Herod's rule. The beginning of Christ's reign will mark the end of his. Don't follow the attitude of Herod. Self-preservation will lead you nowhere but hell. And that's the lie that the devil wants you to believe today, that if you preserve your life and you make it your way and you make it all about you and you build your little hedge of protection to keep everyone out, including Christ, that you have done what you finally wanted to do. You are independent, self-preserving, self-sustained, and the favorite phrase of everyone these days, self-made. There's just one problem. Your life is still going down. Your soul has still yet to be saved. That kind of approach is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic after it hit the iceberg. The thing is still going down. You're just trying to make it look pretty. It's like putting lipstick on a corpse. It's not going to save you or change you. Here's the beautiful truth that the gospel brings and that Jesus has come to proclaim that he transforms your life. He bears real fruit. He takes your dead life that you think is alive and he makes it truly alive. And so you start looking at passages like John 10, 10, I have come that they might have life and life more abundantly and everything makes sense. You say, that's what the abundant life is. This is what it is. And Jesus comes in and all darkness goes. It is only light and you see things clearly. But Herod, like so many, would rather save his throne than his soul, and eventually he'll lose 
both. I don't want that for you. The people who tell you these things don't want that for you. But Herod continues. He secretly calls the Magi, verse 7, and he determined from them the exact time the star appeared. This is because he's going to make his little calculations with his advisory group. When did it happen? What time was it? What day? Okay, then he must be under two years old. And we'll get to this in the texts ahead, in the weeks ahead. Kill every baby boy two years and under. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. We know now that's a lie. Why didn't they, if they were wise men, magi, well-researched, well, no matter what, they didn't have Google or the internet or news stories about Herod. They're from a very faraway place. 800 to 900 miles is like us right now, not really knowing what in the world is going on in some obscure part of Russia. You know, that's how removed it is with no news. So they're not necessarily aware of Herod's track record. They will be made aware. We'll see that in the end. But as of right now, Herod implores them to search diligently in Bethlehem. He's hoping that his resentment will slip by them. And so onward for the six miles from where they were down into Bethlehem, it would have roughly taken them around two to three hours depending on their mode of transportation and the terrain. And when they get there, we see another response, and it's the rejoicing. Matthew is not subtle. He repeats the same kind of words here, and you'll see it. And that's when you know that a biblical author is trying to tell you something and get you to camp right there and meditate on it. So we will. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And they saw the star. They rejoiced exceedingly. He could have ended it there, but it says, they rejoiced exceedingly, and then he adds, with great joy. It's like saying, I was so happy, just elated, ecstatic, over the moon, over the top. You're like, we got it. We got it. And we don't know whether the star is hovering over the little town of Bethlehem where Jesus was, because that's what that could mean. And they see it, and they go with resolve, and the resolve continues as they inquire and ask questions. Hey, where's, where's the baby who was born? Do you remember a couple that ended up sort of in, in, a, in a stable around here. Are you, you familiar? Maybe it's a smaller town, so you only have a certain amount of babies that have been born in that range of time. Whatever the case, they're inquiring. Or could it have been miraculously that the star is directly over the house where they are? Certainly it could have been. So your nativity scene is intact with your little star up top. Praise God for that. At least something can stick. We don't know what we do know is this is a picture of God's sovereignty, ordering the steps of not only his son who came into the world to be savior, but those who would come and put on display worship and homage at the feet of him who the Father has sent. He ensures that they get there. And this is fulfilling prophecy. Just checking off box after box after box of what the Old Testament had said will happen when the true Messiah comes. But also, no accident that Matthew uses so many words to express the joy of these magi. 
I think you have a contrast here between the indifferent chief priests and scribes along with Herod and what true seekers look like. See, today we're kind of weird about the term seeker-sensitive, and I'm with you because a lot of churches will make things what they call seeker-sensitive. We're a seeker-sensitive church. What that means is I want to be sensitive to you, and I don't want to say anything offensive. So I don't say Jesus is the only way. Give your life to him. The word repent is like profanity. You don't offend people. So we want to be seeker-sensitive. Why? Well, because people are coming. They're trying to check out Jesus. We do the money-back guarantee. Like, hey, try Jesus for 30 days at Costco Jesus. You ever go and hit the samples? It's like, I need a little bit of Jesus. I'm over here. My wife's looking for me. I'm like, hey, just looking for the things on the list. And I'm around the back corner. I'm like, can I get another Hot Pocket? All of that, right? That's how people treat the Lord. And churches go, we just want to kind of, let's sample-size him. Not too much. But there is an aspect of of being a seeker that we want to remember and be sensitive to. And it's this kind of picture. The one who has come from far away. They believe that he is the Messiah. They don't know all the rules. They don't really know how to dress. They don't know how to talk. They haven't figured out what many Christians do after just a few years to give boxed answers and act religious. They are true seekers, if you will. And you know what they are a contrast of? The know-it-alls. The chief priests and the scribes know the scrolls. And what do they do? Oh, yeah, Herod, it's uh, Micah 5.2. You know, they don't have chapters and verses. So Micah said this, and here's the scroll. And yeah, they said he'd be... It's the outsiders that are more excited, more fired up, more zealous, with more resolve. i got to find him. Where is he? It's the religious, uptight chief priests and scribes that know so much, but it doesn't result in joy. And then Herod is the same contrast. Instead of joy, instead of saying, well, I've occupied this throne long enough. I, I really was only put here by Caesar lowercase g, God, as many think he is, now the one has come. And like John the Baptist, he gets out of the way. You remember John the Baptist? The story of John the Baptist is interesting. He's the setup man, I would call him. Like the guy in a baseball game who comes in the eighth inning to just get three outs, and then he's out. The closer's coming in. That's Jesus. John the Baptist, he's just the setup man. He's in to just hold things over till the one comes. And his disciples come to him in this incredible story. And they say, well, look at all them following him. And I'm paraphrasing for you, but John basically says in John chapter 3, almost like, didn't you know that was the whole point, guys? That's where we get John 3 verse 30 when John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. See, Herod is a contrast to how so many others viewed Christ. He's here let me get out of the way. He's here, take it all. You want it, you've got it. It's yours. Seekers here who seem to see more than the religious experts. Perhaps a picture of our world today and how we must be so careful to lose the childlike joy of Jesus. Coming to church, gathering together, reading his word, 
being in prayer, being together, being in community, enjoying the, the means of grace, all these things ought to create a sense of joy. Are you finding joy in him? Is your purpose wrapped up in him? What makes you happy? Is it linked to Christ or something else? Oh, but they're not just there even for that, just a, a kind of a feel-good moment. They have come to worship. And so we come to our final response, which is the reverence. Their joy turns to action, action through reverence and worship. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. By the way, that's another reason we, we may not view this as the stable and immediately after, but coming into the house now. There's no more manger. They see the child with Mary, his mother, and what do they do? They fell to the ground and they worshiped him. That's how kings were treated. They bow down to a baby, but he's not just any baby. He is the baby, the Messiah. And, and we don't want to make too much of the gifts, as some people do, these gifts that they bring. But a lot of scholars and commentators believe these to be, by way of, I would say, sanctified speculation, representatives of three particular things. Gold, his royalty, as one in the line of David. Frankincense, his divinity, because it was involved in worship of gods. Myrrh, his humanity, because it was used to preserve the body with spices in times of burial. And whether or not that's Matthew's point in naming the gifts, we could say that by way of illustration, you're seeing the way that Christ is viewed. He is the one who would take David's throne forever. He was truly God, but he came and took on flesh, condescending to earth for you and for me. He's truly human. What we do know for certain, though, is that Matthew has Isaiah in mind. See, he names the same gifts. It's impossible not to think back to a time when one of the prophets, particularly Isaiah, said, hey, here's what's coming and here's what they're going to bring. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 3 through 6. I've pulled the statements from these verses. You can look at them in their fullest sense later, but this will give you the picture. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. They all gather together. This is Yahweh declaring through the prophet about the Messiah. They come to you. The wealth of nations will come to you. They will bring gold and frankincense. This is a definitive picture that this is no ordinary baby. He's the one. And all will now come and worship him. He's the savior of his people, the shepherd of shepherds, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And can we not agree that the ignorant fools have missed him, the chief priests and the scribes, completely ignorant that he is the one they're reading about? The blind fool himself, Herod, resents the fact that he is the one. And the wise in this particular narrative, how do they respond? The wise respond with reverence. A reminder that the wisest thing you could ever do is bow your knee to Christ. The smartest moment in your life is when you come to the conclusion that he is the Messiah, 
the son of the living God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign over the universe. He holds the universe in his hands. That as a baby, he was still Lord over his creation. When you bow the knee to those truths and the person of Jesus Christ, you are exemplifying the high point of all of your intellect. That's your best moment. Your best moment of any. They fall to the ground. They worship him. They're resolved to seek him. Every grueling mile, every ounce of sweat, every question, every treasure, all of it was all motivated by one goal. They want to get to that moment of worship. You reach back in their journey, and let me just give you four kind of summary statements. They have read the word about Christ. They have believed that he is the Christ. With eager hearts, they have sought Christ, and now they adore Christ. Is that the way you're living your life? Or is that too much for you? Is that how you view him? Is the culmination of everything that you would worship him? Uh, During the height of the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln often took refuge in a little Presbyterian church. There's a lot going on in the country at the time. His soul was in turmoil. He had just lost his son. There was fighting in our nation. Few people would even know he was there. He would kind of slip in, and he would have an aide with him, and he would sit over by the preacher's study, trying not to draw too much attention to the fact that the president is in the building. He needed the truth. He needed something more for his soul. As the pastor finished his message on one of the midweek gatherings, the people got up and they began to file out. Lincoln did the same. His aide stopped him briefly and said, Mr. President, what did you think of the sermon? President Lincoln said it was carefully thought out and it was eloquently delivered. And then the aide responded, so you thought it was a great sermon then? Lincoln said, no, it was another failure. To which the aide responded, how did he fail? Lincoln said, and I quote, because he did not ask of us something great. And that is where the challenge lies for us today. Knowledge is not enough. How are you living your life? Anyone can come to church and play the game. Anybody can check a box of some religious exercise. Are you going to great lengths in your life to worship Christ? Is everything about Christ? All that you have, your greatest treasures laid down before him, your time, your energies, your effort, is your joy and your happiness attached to Jesus? Like if you had everything but you didn't have him, would you view that as success? Would that even uh, make your heart skip a beat as you think, well, so many people today, they want a little bit of Jesus on a lot of their life their way. That's not how it works. We cannot be content with merely seeking Jesus, but when we find him, we bow to him. I think that would be robbery in the greatest sense. If a pastor stole money, that's serious, but it still is incomparable to the robbery of withholding what belongs to people the truth. 
He is everything that the prophets declared he was. Will you bow the knee and worship him? You know, the reason that they had no trouble in verse 12, ignoring Herod, they were warned by God in a dream not to return. You could say that they heard the word of the Lord. You and I, we hear the word of the Lord. Maybe not through dreams and visions. Maybe not because God is, you know, yelling at you in your car. If you think he is, I, you know, I don't know what voice that is. I'd be careful. We all hear the word of the Lord. They had a decision too, you know. Yeah, but what if Herod finds us? We're not that difficult. He's seen our faces, you know. What if he sends a, a delegation of soldiers? If we don't go back, he says, go find those men from the east. What if this turns out bad for us? No, many of us face the same decision. We hear the word of the Lord and we think, well, should I obey this or should I obey my own desires and my own fears or the will of man? The reason they did not bow the knee to the world or to Herod is because they had already bowed their knee to Christ. Have you? Does he own you? Do you belong to him? Is he everything? Their journey of adoration, it culminates with obedience and loyalty. And I want you to know, church, and I hope we're this way together, that words like obedience and loyalty and faithfulness, these are not terms of legalism. These aren't burdens heaped on you and I, like if we do enough, we'll be good enough. No, you already were never good enough. Only the grace of God saved you. We know that. Nothing you do or I do is impressive to God. It's simply this. When he has taken over, when his grace has saved you, have you come to the place where he consumes you and all you want to do is adore him. You know, if knowledge was their goal, they could have stayed home. Worship was always the goal. And I pray that that would be ours as well.